Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Julia Forshaw. How are you doing, Julia? Good, John. Excellent. And we're going to talk about the news. That's right. Which you wrote the two lead stories. For yeah, Royal Mail and EasyJet. Two uh, very topical, topical stories. And Jonas Crossland, how are you doing, Jonas? Very well, thanks, John. Excellent. You wrote the cover feature. I did indeed. Yeah. House builders. Yes. Which, which it kind of feels like we've done to death, but there's always something more to say. This is <laughs> yeah. This is the great story of our time, I think. Exactly. apart from Brexit, of course. Yeah, and everyone has an interest. And everyone has an interest. Um, okay, let's start with uh, let's start with the two main news stories. Let's start with the, the the lead story, Royal Mail. So we've got these shares on a sell. We're sticking with that. What's the new news this week? Uh, so yesterday they had a Q1 update, and the I, every time that they have an update. The first thing to look at is have how far letters continued to decline and have parcels managed to keep up with it. And during the first quarter of this financial year, so far that's not the case. Overall, group sales are down 1% because GDPR has had a particularly bad impact on the business. On letter volumes. On letter volumes, yeah. So, so ha- explain, to me the, explain to me the mechanism why, why GDPR would have an effect on Royal Mail letter volumes. So GDPR, um, it's these new data protection rules that came out. They've affected every business in the market. And it means that companies can't send out uh, marketing material to addressed, uh, like to particular addresses anymore. And unless these, unless people who want to receive that opt in, which probably most people don't want that mail in their inbox. Yeah, because I mean, you know, from, from, a, from a householder's perspective, this sounds like great news. Yeah, less junk mail to sort through. Less junk mail. But because when Royal Mail sends letters with a particular address on it, they can charge more for, than for letters that are just sent out in bulk to a specific area with no particular address on them. I mean, that's true because the, the Royal Mail does also put through my door quite a lot of the time uh, just a random collection of paper that, from various advertisers. Mm, that's and so, right. And, and so, so, so they're making money out of that, but not as much. Yeah, exactly. They can charge significantly more for something that has the household's particular address on it. Okay. So, and, and your contention is that, that this is a bigger risk than, than perhaps that, than it's being uh, b- b- that it's that it's thought it might be. Yeah, this only came into effect back in March, but it's difficult to say at this point how much of an effect that's going to have long term. And so, uh, the forecast the company's giving right now is that. Uh, in the foreseeable future, so how many years ahead of time now, they're expecting the letter volu- volume of letters sent to fall between 4 and 6% a year. But they say, given the uncertainty around GDPR and these new rules that have come in, this could, in fact, actually fall farther, especially in this financial year. I was going to say, I don't get too many letters anymore. Um, that could be why. I, I mean, no, even before then. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I, I got some junk mail. I, I get some bills every now and then. But most of my bills I've opted out of, uh, of, of being sent through the post kind of makes me think to ask the question how much of royal mail's letter business is in fact junk mail now and how many people are actually sending letters to each other could the impact be more significant than than they they're they're even forecasting now i think it very well could be because just for what you've said there people are becoming more environmentally conscious and thinking why should i get my bills sent in a paper uh, letter rather than just having it conveniently delivered to my inbox inbox saving a couple of trees along the way but well, what, what sort of percentage of the of the the overall Royal Mail business is, is letters? I mean, how, how important is it that uh, uh, letters le- and parcels are the two the two big biggest uh, sources of revenue for the company? They've got this smaller logistics GLS business, which has continued to do quite well, but uh, the bulk of the revenue is split between letters and parcels. Okay. So that's why it's just this ongoing balancing act of can the increase in the volume of parcels 
continue to make up for this decline in letters. So, so I guess to be, to be bullish in in uh, in respect of the Royal Mail, you would have to believe that whatever the so the, the rate of declining letters is not going to be as quick as you might as they are suggesting, and the rate of increase in parcels is going to be significant. Is going to outpace that. It's going to outpace that. And you would probably be thinking that because we're all spending a lot more online and a lot more of the things that we buy are coming through the post uh, or or through the parcel delivery business, this is great news for Royal Mail. Yeah, people love shopping online. They like returning things as well. That's all quite good news for Royal Mail. But there are so many new entrants into that market that the sustainability of how much of that will actually go through Royal Mail is still a huge question. I mean, are there any signs in the latest results that um, that, that actually competitors are picking up some of the share that, that Royal Mail might have expected to have, have got otherwise? Yeah, I mean, you could just look at the top line numbers and say that parcels couldn't make up the difference in the decline in sales from letters during this point because overall group revenue was down about 1%. I mean, it's interesting. We actually wrote a feature um, on this very subject. The risk, in fact, it wasn't on Royal Mail specifically. It was on Amazon, and Amazon is obviously probably the company that we buy most from in in terms of online sales in the UK, mm-hmm. and in fact, globally. Um, what was it? November two thousand and sixteen. We wrote this feature about how Amazon is something that you should be worried about, even if you're not interested in buying its shares. What the impact that, that Amazon's expansion might have on on businesses you might own. Royal Mail is is obviously potentially in Amazon's crosshairs. Yeah, definitely one of them because there's been nothing's, it doesn't seem like anything's uh, solid at the moment, but there's just ongoing talk with Amazon that they could potentially take their logistics business in-house rather than using third parties to send these parcels such yep. as Royal Mail. So. Well, well they, they do that to an extent anyway. I mean, I, I, you can order something on a Saturday and it would turn up on a Sunday. Now, the Royal Mail certainly doesn't do that. No, definitely these not. Must be- not with these uh, this cutback in staff as well. Th- these are guys that are directly uh, contracted by Amazon, I I assume. Oh, they must be, yeah. They must be. Royal Mail's not going to do it on a Sunday. Uh, you, you mentioned there are cuts to the workforce. This is around the pension issue that uh, that we've written about previously, which which has kind of been resolved, but you, Ish, you contend yeah. that it's, it's, not, it's not entirely resolved. Or it has some knock-on effects. Yeah, because towards the end of last year, um, there was talk that uh, there was going to be huge labour strikes across Royal Mail because they were so unhappy with their pension because they, t- like, they couldn't... W- the scheme that they had at that time was just clearly not sustainable going forward. They're mm-hmm. anticipating around like a billion in contributions every year just for the pension scheme. When From the Royal Mail, from, from essentially from cash profits. Then. That's right, yeah. And now they've renegotiated it all, so it looks like it'll be closer to around like a 400 million contribution each year, which compared to a billion sounds quite good. But they also had to make a lot of concessions with the workers so that they wouldn't go on strike. Like they've shaved like an hour at least off the working week every week. And they're getting paid, I think it's 5% more. Okay. And get, they've received a pay increase. So the another update, part of this update was um, they kind of mention in passing that labor costs are continuing to increase, but they're hoping that these increases in productivity the, will be able to offset this. So just making better use out of the workers that they'll have on the ground okay, that, at that, any given time. But that would suggest they have to have better systems, better technology, better platforms in place for, for enabling that, that productivity improvement. Yeah, that, so that would. Would, and that would imply that they're having to invest. Exactly. Yeah, no, apparently they've, uh, they're about to start rolling out this GPS system that, so that every delivery person will have like this GPS like tracker on them so they can see where each of the sort of pinch points are and how they can sort out scheduling so that it's more efficient and they can have people in the right places at the right time. All right. 
Okay. Schedule, scheduling of delivery, as far as I understand it, is one of the most impossible things to, <laughs> to try and streamline in the world. It doesn't but, seem uh, like anyone's ever very satisfied. No one has ever cracked that, as far as I'm aware. Um, but anyway, the, the point is, is that, you know, it doesn't sound... To me, so in a world, in a, in a delivery logistics world that's becoming ever more competitive, where you've got people like Amazon who, who are threatening to take stuff in-house, deliver on a Sunday, uh, you know, where, where, where you get all sorts... You know, there are so many different options now for delivery. Mm-hmm. Even They've private actually, companies like Parcel Hero coming in and taking some market share as well. Who's Parcel Hero? Just a private company. Just okay. an example of the few of them that are coming out there right now. But, you know, this sounds like a time where you've got these, these massive threats and companies that are prepared to go the extra mile, as it were. And, and Royal Mail is kind of saying, well, we've sold the pension thing, but it means that we can't go the extra mile now because people are working less and... It, does, it just didn't sound right to me. Yeah, it? it's just, I, I feel like when you look at the long term, it's just, it's difficult to see where these long term cash flows are going to come from. And when you've got flat, flat at best revenue and increasing costs, it, it just doesn't look sustainable. Mm, I mean, I know our, our tip has gone against us. It has so far. <laughs> and, and we've had some comments was, to the effect, you know, what, what is it going to take to change our view? That's right. And at, I, I mean, and one of the uh, bear points in our original sell tip uh, from back in October was the pension scheme. But that was that's only part of the argument. Yeah. And as, as, as I say, I think I think, yeah, you might have solved the actual financial risk there, but but it's created an operational risk from the sound. Exactly. Um, OK, so we're sticking with our, sticking to our guns, sticking to the cell, sticking to our guns. Um, let's talk about EasyJet. I mean, this is another uh, potentially troubled sector, especially in the context of Brexit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've, we've obviously heard, uh, you know, the, the, the possibilities that, you know, in the event of a no deal Brexit and, and, and actually the events of the last week suggest that is an, in, an ever increasing possibility. Flights might be grounded. You know, the whole, the whole European air, air infrastructure, certainly where it comes to the, the, the UK bit of it, might grind to a halt. Not a time to be investing in airlines or, or it otherwise. It depends which airline, I think. EasyJet, they've got their air operator certificate uh, all lined up based in Austria. So even if the UK does leave the European Union with, with no aviation deal, they'll still be able to fly their planes. They're yeah, all fine. So they've had some numbers this week and um, they've increased their profit expectations. And this is despite so the, you know, the uh, I don't want to be cruel, but French, of- French air traffic control strikes. <laughs> <laughs> Surely, surely this is this is not an exception. Yeah, anymore. they've joined the ranks of uh, of Ryanair and IAG in in filing a complaint to the European Commission over these French airstrikes in in May and June, just because yeah they had to cancel two thousand six hundred and six flights compared to like mid to low double digits the year before. I've been on the receiving end of that. Ah, it was great. You got a longer holiday. You got to spend three <laughs> extra days in Nice. <laughs> It's fantastic. Yeah. Good for you. Perhaps not so great for the people you're flying with because, yeah, EasyJet's estimated that it's going to add around $25 million to their exceptional cost bill for by the full year yeah. just in having to compensate people for having to stay in Nice for a little bit longer. Yeah, no, no, no. It's a hard, it's a hard life being, a, being an EasyJet customer. Um, there's some other costs they've had to bear in, in relation to new slots which they're taking. Um, yeah, after yeah. the collapse of uh, Air Berlin last year, they swooped in and took up some of their uh, runway spaces that were at uh, Berlin's Air- Tegel Airport. Okay. But as you would kind of expect with a airline that went out of business, the slots that they had there were what they call, or what EasyJet is called, inefficient. So they're in the process of trying to renegotiate those uh, the timing of the flights from that airport right now. And so in the meantime, they're expecting by the full year that this will have cost the business overall around £175 million 
compared to the 160 that they'd previously estimated. But, we, but by full year 2019, they're expecting to break even and make a profit. Okay, we've upgraded to buy. We have, yeah. Because, I mean, despite all these added cost pressures, they still did quite well over the period because during the third quarter, their total sales were up 14%. They continue to add capacity while without, not at the expense of load factor, meaning how full the planes are. Yep. And more passengers, the filling seats, they're adding capacity. All is good. So not the end of the world. No, and they're all prepared. Yeah, and they're all prepared for Brexit as well. Which I mean, things like IAG hasn't really come out and said much detail on the thing. They've been quite tight-lipped about it. Mm. But then you've got Ryanair campaigning all the time, saying like, we absolutely cannot leave the European Union without a air traffic deal, just because they won't be able to fly after that. But Ryanair complain all the time. This is true. This is unusual for Ryanair. We've got some other results actually this week from the travel sector, which are probably worth a quick mention, which is Dart, a name listed, essentially a tour operator, Jet 2 Holidays. You, you kind of miss the ads if you've, uh, if you've ever cho- so much as turned on the television. We've had them on a sell, but again, this has sort of slightly gone against us. Yeah, uh, no, it hasn't uh, panned out the way we've kind of thought it would so far. But again, long term, we're sticking with the sell case because unlike an EasyJet, they've been adding capacity, but... They just don't have any, seem to have any power around ticket prices. Like EasyJet over the period manages to increase ticket prices and people are still buying buying the tickets, filling the planes. Whereas uh, with Dart, the tickets, ticket yields actually uh, fell during the year. And so they just, they just don't seem to have the pricing power that other airlines seem to. But the numbers are moving in the right direction. They are profits moving the right profits are moving up, earnings per share are moving up. It must be doing something right. I'm kind of kind of True. wondering what we expect to go wrong here. They, I mean, they are adding capacity, but at the same time, when these ticket yields are just falling, that means that's having an impact on margins as well. There's quite a lot of uncertainty around Brexit as well. They are kind of along the ranks of like your IAG and your, your Ryanair and not really giving a whole lot of clarity around that. And so, and also they seem long-term, uh, for the next financial year, they kind of expect that to be significantly ahead. But... Beyond that, they kind of are a bit more vague and think that this, uh, that the uncertainty around the UK economy could potentially uh, hurt the business. Because, I mean, the good thing with EasyJet is that you can buy individual tickets for a good price. And while you can also do that for with, uh, with Dart, with the Jet2 airlines, they also rely quite heavily on these packaged holidays as well. Mm. And as people, if the UK economy begins to contract, they see their budgets maybe not wanting to buy a packaged holiday, maybe opt for a cheap flight and then find their own cheap accommodation. So we've got a bit, a bit, of, a bit of cyclical risk in there, which, yeah, which probably isn't being risk, taken into so. account. Yeah, we don't think so anyway. We okay. think that, uh, yeah, now the share prices have gone up quite a bit, so it's, it's a good time to get out. Yeah, no, why not? Take profits. No one ever, no one ever lost money taking a profit. Nope. Um, interestingly, <laughs> uh, Paul Jackson in his No Free Lunch column this week has also looked at Stobart, which is another another mm. uh, company we've spoken about recently. Yeah, that's uh, right. Obviously, the owner of Southend Airport. Um, and uh, yeah, Paul Jackson's view is that this is this is actually corporate governance working properly, which is which is interesting. That that, that actually uh, it's worth a read. Um, it is because uh, yeah, because I mean, we think the fundamentals of the business look great. They've had some recent uh, issues at board level uh, that we talked about on last week's podcast, but. On the whole, we think the fundamentals of the business look great. I mean, there's a huge opportunity for Southend Airport if they can reach their target by 2022 of having 5 million passengers a year through Southend, whereas right now they're getting about a million. It's a huge opportunity for growth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they're having their uh, airlines seem quite keen to 
to uh, sign up for air slots. Ryanair was the most recent one to invest quite a lot of money in the airport. Indeed. And yeah, Crossrail is going to come through, make it a lot easier to get to the airport from London as well. So seems like everything's pointing in the right direction. It's that travel time of year. What are you off to join us this year? Uh, Norfolk again. Norfolk again. You're going to bring back some beer? Oh, indeed, I will, yeah. Absolutely. I'm going to Suffolk. I'm going, I'm going to uh, Southfold. So I'll oh. bring you back some beer as well. Southfold. We'll have a beer exchange. Goodness me, yeah. Where, where are you off to, Julia? I'm off to Rome next weekend. Ooh. Mm-hmm. How lovely. Flying um, with EasyJet, as hey, a matter of fact. There you go. I'll give you a freebie. Should we talk about house builders? Why not? Why not? Excellent. <clears throat> so, house builders, which we have talk and, talked about time and time again, not been the greatest time for house builders the last year or so. Uh, lots of concerns in this market. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to use Barrett Developments as an example because they came out with a trading statement which covers the year to June. Now, in, in that statement, they, they said that their margins have improved. Um, the dividend's covered one and a half times, and it's yielding a forecast 9.4%. But the shares are down 20% year-to-date, and they trade on one time, well, 1.2 times forecast net assets. Well, this is either pricing in some very, very bad news, or the market sentiment has got it badly wrong. Um, and I'm not prepared to say which. <laughs> no, that's no good, Jonas. I'm going I'm to I'm have to force you to, to come up, to well, get off the fence here. If we don't, if we don't have a, a, a sort of a cliff-edge Brexit... Which, we, we could have a cliff-edge Brexit, though. Ah, well, that, that's, <clears throat> that's the tricky bit, because obviously that's going to affect uh, uh, skilled labour. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because actually, this is this is a, a sort of broad narrative about leaving the European Union mm. and <clears throat> the, the labour flows and our reliance upon European labour. Eighty percent of the of the construction workforce, house building construction workforce in the UK, is actually British. It's, it's quite a significant number. So, so yes, there is some European labour building homes in the UK, but it's not as big as you might think. No, it's reasonable. It's quite high in London, obviously, because you get paid more. But in the regions, it's not that high. And, and this is quite interesting because actually, I mean, in terms of the house builders, so what we've done in this feature, I mean, Barrett, we do like some of these companies. We do think there yeah. is a bit of a bit of an overreaction to the to the, the potential troubles down down the road. But but actually, there are some companies that we think are uh, kind of in, in the right spots, uh, building in the right areas. There is a bit of a regional disparity here. Uh, London is kind of dominating the narrative. But actually, it, and it's, it's disguising some, some kind of good trends out in the regions where, where actually, even on this workforce basis, there's less to worry about. Yeah, I mean, Persimmon's one of the big ones, and they don't build houses inside the M25, and their average price is about 250000 which is, well, it's the affordable end. It's about, it's about the average, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, well, it's a bit below the average. A bit below actually. the average. Yeah. Whereas companies like uh, Cress Nicholson recently came out with a statement saying, well, the apartments we're building for 600000 because there's no um, sales price inflation, cost input inflation has started to chew up margins. So this is cost of labour, the cost of materials, this is yeah. bricks, yeah. this is insulation, yeah. whatever it might be. Yeah, simple as that. I mean, you can, you can, um, you can make some savings there. Uh, Barrett Developments did save on their costs a little bit, but because they're at the lower end... Um, of, the, of the market, they're, they're, they're still getting about 2 or 3% uh, sales price inflation, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is enough to knock, uh, compensate for 3 to 4% cost input inflation. And, and I think you make the point in the feature that, that actually it's this, it's this price inflation, the, the house price inflation, that is the, the thing that keeps the house builders going. If you don't have that, 
and your costs are rising, you're in trouble as a hospital. Well, you'll, 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 you'll mess up your margins. But when you've got a, an operating margin of 20 25%, um, you can still make good money. But the, the worry would be, I mean, obviously, investors are looking not necessarily just at today, but where we will be going in the future. And if the, and if the direction of travel is, is towards lower margins, that's not an attractive story. Well, it's not an attractive story, but when you consider that some of the construction companies have operating margins of 1.5%, um, you know, huge order books from tiny profits, whereas the house builders, it's more the other way around. Yeah. I mean, it's quite interesting because you think about all the fundamentals behind us, the, the housing crisis, the shortage of homes, the, the, the desperate need to build more. Uh, you know, there, there are only so many builders in the country, large builders, mm. you know, and, and they have the whip hand in terms of, you know, the, the ability to control the market. You know, you, you would think that they were in a good spot. And it's, it's ki- I, I, I kind of buy your point that the sentiment has overtaken things here. Yeah. Um, you, you could little, uh, last, uh, last Monday, I went to see a company called MJ Gleason in Sheffield, and they build houses which they maintain two people on the minimum wage can buy, and their average selling price is around 123,000. Mm. And that's for two bedroom, semi detached house or attached by a, gar- uh, a garage with a garden, parking space out the front. Very nice, too. Um, and the way they can do it is because they use uh, sort of derelict plots within council estates and their cost per plot is 9,000 quid uh, as opposed to 80,000 quid for, for some of the uh, more expensive yeah. plots in the southeast. It's a no-brainer. And we've got a few companies. So what you've done in this feature is pick out a few companies that who've kind of not necessarily adapted their model, but their model has always been slightly different. And, and as the market becomes tighter at the higher end and the, and the shortage of, of affordable housing becomes more acute, these are the companies that are, that are in the best position to, to exploit that. Yeah, I mean, Barclays just has uh, has quite happily admitted that profits next year are going to be about 60-70% of what they were this year, mm. but they're still going to make half a billion quid. Yeah. That's true, that's true. Um, but but actually, we, I mean, we are kind of more interested, and, and they're paying a nice dividend still, so you can buy them as an income yep. income stock, although you have to worry about the, the, the potential capital uh, depreciation there in terms of the share price. But we're in, what, what we've got here are some companies who will continue to grow even as the market tightens. Oh, yes, very much so. Um, and there's, there's, there's other avenues. Um, countryside properties is a good example because they're, half their uh, turnover is it, partnership deals and they're building land in conjunction with uh, local authorities, usually on local authority land. And of course, I would never suggest it, but it's, uh, it helps the planning process. Yeah, Urban and Civic is another example. Of, yeah. Uh, what do they call them? They call them uh, uh, master. Master, master building contracts. Yeah, yeah. They've fallen on a gold mine because they've got all these uh, disused airfields and they're thousands of acres, and they're, they're handing it out in plots to different builders. And funnily enough, they're not all the big builders, they're local builders. It's just an ongoing situation, and they will work very closely with local authorities so they'll they'll start building schools and bits and pieces like that before any houses are built what we're essentially saying is there is still some life for investors in the house building sector you just have to approach it in a in a kind of more circumspect way oh very much so yeah i mean some of the trends that you know we looked at affordable affordability stats when when you were writing this feature i mean it's insane Mm. the multiples now (laughs) that uh well yeah it's insane in london but i mean it's only I think it's five times as opposed to ten times in London. It's still difficult because obviously, you know, you, you've got your help to buy, but you've still got to find 5%. Uh, 
uh, deposit, which basically means the... Uh, the age of the first-time buyer is stretching out a bit further. Having said that, we, I mean, I had a look at the house builder report you did for Alpha as, as we were going through this, looking for some good, good uh, illustrative charts. And, and actually, the, the number of first-time buyers is it's still ticking steadily upwards. I oh, mean, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good market. Oh, very much so, very much so. Um, especially at the, the um, cheaper end because, uh, well, say, going back to Gleason, you don't pay any stamp duty on their houses because they're below the, the, uh, the 125 limit. You, my, my great worry about those kind of models, I, I mean, I, I love the idea of those models. But the trouble yeah. is, you know, London is such a magnet. Um, people do want to live in London. A lot of, the, you know, the biggest companies, the places people want to work in London. How much of this is dependent upon some, some, some real changes to government policy that, that kind of spreads the, the kind of economic uh, benefit of, you know, sort of national growth throughout the country? Better infrastructure, you know. Well, better infrastructure. I mean, the, the Midlands, if you go back, I don't know, 30, 40 years You've lost uh, the coal mines, steel, cars. Uh, it was just a sort of an economic wasteland mm. for decades. And it's, it's only recently that they've started to sort of really pull ahead. And, and that's where a lot of the investment money is going because they're playing catch-up. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed. Yeah, it's a, it's a slow burn. I mean, tra- and the other thing I, I mentioned in my editorial, in fact, is training. Um, you know, we talked about labour uh, shortages, but training is, I think we have spoken about this before, Tra- training is a big thing. Yeah. Lots of, lots of young people looking for jobs. I think, you know, the, if we want another house building boom, you've got to train <laughs> people to build them. Yeah, and also it, on the training side, um, a report's just come out from the House of Lords today which said that the um, the clients, designers and contractors have to all get together <clears throat> if they want to improve on modular construction. And that brings in another aspect because for modular construction, you don't want necessarily brick bricklayers you need people who are handy with a computer mm. doing all the designs it's, and that's well a great shortage there it's quite interesting actually i, I mean modular construction when you think of you know modular homes you know you think of certainly in this country you might get think of like the sort of post-war <laughs> prefabs, prefabs you know? yeah. it's like a little little sort of uh, shed um, but actually in the US, modular homes, most homes are built on a modular basis using yep. things like stru- structural insulated panels. Have we, have we just got an attitude problem when it comes to modular? Oh, possibly, yes. I mean, I've seen some uh, early ones built by a small company called Mars City. And that's, I, a, that's, on, that's an aim listed, isn't it? Yeah, I aim traded even. I couldn't tell the difference. No, they are. They're, love, they're lovely houses. I mean, yeah. you know, really, and they're very energy efficient as well. All the, oh, yeah. Um, and, but, but, but some of the big house builders are exploring this. I think uh, you mentioned in the feature that Persimmon has a division delivering about 6,500 homes on a modular oh, basis. Oh, uh, yeah, Foursquare. I think it's called Foursquare. Where, where are they? Um, well, they're in the regions. They're not in London. Um, but it's, it, they only produce certain parts, like walls, because you can insulate them very well. Yeah. They yeah. don't get wet or dirty. And then you take them out and bolt them together. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I've seen, I mean, you can build the whole, you can build a whole house out of these things. You can build them in a day as well. I mean, Yeah, yeah, you can. And you can use a lot more wood as well. Yeah, absolutely. We don't like wooden homes in England, though. <laughs> too, too many three little pig stories, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you, Jonas. No, it's, it's fascinating. House building heroes. There were definitely some uh, some good stories out there still uh, still to be uh, tapped into. Um, anyway, let's go through the rest of the magazine before I wrap up. We've got a secondary feature from Neil Wilson 
on the potential for stagflation to make a comeback. It's, it's a very interesting scenario that I think investors ought to prepare themselves for. Have a read of that. Tom Dines has looked at, he's continued, Tom Dines has really taken the uh, book club uh, by the cudgel, and this week he's looking at investment lessons from Charlie Munger. He's read uh, Poor Charlie's Almanac by Charlie Munger, which costs £100, and apparently there's uh, a couple of cheaper options which you can, uh, which say much the same thing. The whole idea is around multidisciplinary investing. Uh, which I like the sound of. It's, you know, it, it includes lots of things, investing in the world around you. What else have we got? The usual personal finance and funds content, which uh, they will talk about in their podcast tomorrow. Uh, lots in the comments section. A very a very curtailed results section, but it's going to kick off again next week, isn't it? Yeah, look, no, from about Wednesday next week, it all gets a bit crazy. Looking forward again. to that. <laughs> Here we go. The summer, the summer crazy time for results. Indeed, yes. And then we can all go on holiday. <laughs> and you bring back some beer. Okay, thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, Jonas. Uh, House Building Heroes, picking winners in a squeezed home construction market. Available in all good news agents. We'll be back again next week. Thank you.